Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. Twenty twenty two marks four hundred and seventy five years since the death of Henry the Eighth. And in fact, there's a strange symmetry to the dates because the founder of the Tudor dynasty, Henry the Seventh, had been born in obscurity on the twenty eighth of January, fourteen fifty seven, while his famous and infamous son died on a winter's night on the same day, ninety years later. He was 55 years old. He was grossly overweight, and he was disabled. He'd been plagued for a decade by a terrible running sore in his leg that in the end had forced him into the Tudor equivalent of a wheelchair and a Stannis stairlift. Following his jousting accident in 1536, this ulcer in his leg had never healed, and modern physicians have suggested that Henry suffered from osteomyelitis, or a chronic septic infection of the femur, and this produced intermittent feverish attacks caused by septic absorption or clotting of the blood as happens in deep vein thrombosis. Untreated, or at least untreated by modern medicine, such clots can lead to a pulmonary embolism, and it therefore may be this that finally killed Henry, although kidney disease and heart failure perhaps together with the swollen legs that are characteristic of edema or dropsy, may also have been contributors. At his death he was Henry VIII, by grace of God, King of England, Ireland and France, defender of the faith and of the Church of England, and also in Ireland, on earth, supreme head. And at two o'clock in the morning, on the 28th of January 1547, in what was the 38th year of his reign, he took his last breath. Some years ago, I wrote a book called The King is Dead, The Last Will and Testament of Henry VIII. And so, to commemorate the anniversary of Henry's death, I wanted to explore with you some ideas about that last year of Henry's life, what his plans had been for the future, what he had hoped before he died, and what happened when he died. And so, in today's explainer, we explore the death of Henry VIII and the mystery of his will. 
passed in Parliament 13 years earlier had made it treason to speak of the king's death. So on the night of the 27th of January 1547, a kind of terror must have gripped Henry's courtiers' hearts, because they could see that he was dying and needed to prepare his soul to meet his maker, but who was going to tell him? In the end, it was Denny who was brave. Sir Anthony Denny was a chief gentleman of the Privy Chamber, and he was close to Henry, he could be trusted. And obviously, above all of those who clustered around the king's pained and corpulent body that night, he cared enough about Henry's fate to risk his own. He told the king that he needed to prepare for death, and asked him if he would see a priest. And Henry said yes, he'd have Dr. Cranmer, his Archbishop of Canterbury. But first he said he would, and I quote, take a little sleep, and then, as I feel myself, I will advise upon the matter. These are his last exact recorded words. When he woke, he commanded that Cranmer be sent for. But delayed on the frozen roads, the messenger took time to reach the Archbishop, and it took time for Cranmer to travel from his house at Croydon back up to Westminster. Too much time. When Cranmer arrived, Henry was now unable to speak, and perilously close to unconsciousness. He wordlessly stretched out his hand to this, his most faithful servant. This is the man, Cranmer, who had broken his marriage to Catherine of Aragon, who had broken the relationship with Rome, and had ensured his marriage to Anne Boleyn. And sensing the urgency, Cranmer didn't bother with the usual rites, the crucifix, candle and communion, but simply instructed his sovereign to put his trust in Jesus Christ. And then he charged him to make some sign that he did indeed put his faith in the Lord. And so the king, holding Cranmer by the hand, did wring his hand as hard as he could. A desperate, impassioned last gesture, let it not all have been in vain. And then he died. The king may have died, but that didn't mean that he was prepared to cede power. And Henry's chief instrument of control from beyond the grave was to be his last will and testament. A month before his death, on St. Stephen's Day, the 26th of December, 1547, he had ordered some last-minute changes to be made to the will, and the will had been signed and witnessed four days later. And Henry's will is one of the most intriguing and contested documents in British history. Historians have disagreed vehemently over its intended meaning, its authenticity, its validity, and the circumstances of its creation. You can see it online if you want, and you can buy a copy of it. It's in parchment, it's 28 folios long, and it was drafted by Sir William Paget, Henry's chief secretary, in gorgeous, clear secretary-hand calligraphy. Let me tell you briefly what's in it. So, it starts with a spiritual preface, in the name of God and of our glorious Blessed Virgin, Our Lady St. Mary. And then it goes on to give Henry's plans for his burial and his tomb. Henry planned that he would reuse Wolsey's tomb, which had been begun, and create this grand edifice to himself that was to be him on horseback. So this mounted kind of warrior figure, for whatever reason, none of his children quite got round to paying for it. And so instead, Henry lies under a very simple, plain black marble slab at St. George's Chapel in Windsor. 
But Henry didn't know they'd be quite so disobedient, and so he outlined in his will what he wanted. He also then outlines his plans for his funeral, and he gives details of money to be given in arms to the poor and the needy. Although he says, in parenthesis, avoiding common beggars, which I think gives you every insight you need, really, into Henry VIII's personality. He's hierarchical even in his charity. He left £1,266 to the Dean and Chapter of Windsor for daily masses to be said perpetually while the world shall endure for his soul. And then he went on to the real business of the will, which was that he named his successors. Now this sets his will apart from the wills of other kings. Kings like Henry VI or Edward IV spent the majority of their wills apportioning their estate. But Henry VIII's will had a different raison d'être. He writes in it, Our chief labour and study in this world is to establish him, meaning his son Edward, in the crown imperial of our realm. And that indeed had been his chief labour and study in his life. His will was dedicated as his life had been to determining the succession and ensuring the future of the dynasty. So some 60% of the will goes to outlining succession scenarios. And it was a document with fundamental constitutional clout. In 1536, after the death of Henry's second wife, Anne, his daughter by her, Elizabeth, and his daughter by Catherine of Aragon had both been declared illegitimate. Meanwhile, his illegitimate son, Henry Fitzroy, Duke of Richmond and Somerset, had died, which left Henry with two living children, but no legitimate heirs. And Henry needed to make provision for a worst-case scenario. So in the Succession Act of 1536, which confirmed the illegitimacy of his daughters, disinheriting them from the right to the throne and determining that his lawful children by Queen Jane and subsequent wives would succeed, he also sets out what should happen in the case of absence of issue. Not to leave the throne destitute, the statute instructs that the king would have the right to appoint a successor, either by letters patent under the great seal of England or by his last will, signed by your most gracious hand, the statute says. The act also empowered Henry to designate conditions for his succession and to appoint a regency council if his heir happened to be a minor at the time of Henry VIII's death, i.e. under the age of 18. The Succession Act of 1544 confirmed these rights, but by this time, of course, Prince Edward had been born, so he was named in that act as Henry's heir, and the ladies Mary and Elizabeth, who had lost their title of princess along with their legitimacy, were reinserted back into the line of succession after Edward and his heirs but weren't legitimised, which produces all sorts of fun and games in 1553. So the will names Henry's successors in eight possible succession scenarios. The first case, obviously, is that Edward would take the throne. The second is that failing the succession of Edward and his heirs, it should be heirs from our entirely beloved queen, Catherine Parr. The third scenario is it should be heirs from any other lawful wife we shall hereafter marry. I want you to remember that this was revised a month before his death. 
You've got to hand it to the man. <laughs> Not only does he believe that it's possible that Catherine Parr is bearing his child, he believes that there may yet be more wives. The fourth scenario is that it should be Mary and her heirs, if her marriage was approved by the Privy Council. The next, that it should be Elizabeth and her heirs, once again under the condition that her marriage be approved by the Privy Council. Then Henry suggests the heirs of the Lady Frances Grey. Lady Frances Grey was his niece, the daughter of his late sister, Mary, known as the French Queen. Now, you'll notice that Henry doesn't nominate Frances, who at the time was alive herself, presumably because he didn't think much of her husband. But he nominates her heirs, which of course leads us to Lady Jane Grey and her sisters. Beyond that, we've got the heirs of Lady Eleanor, the second daughter of his sister Mary. And then after that, giving up, he's thought through every option he can. He says to the next rightful heirs. The will then goes on to name 16 executors, all of them men, of course, his most senior, enduring and trusted servants, in whom Henry states, we put our singular trust and confidence, and whom he charged, as they shall answer at the day of judgment, truly and fully to see this, my last will, performed in all things. And they are given two crucial tasks as his executors. They were to pay all his debts, including any unfulfilled grants or gifts that had been promised but not perfected. And there's one other clause which says they can make, devise and ordain what things soever they think meet, necessary and convenient for the benefit, honour and surety of the realm. The same 16 were to be privy councillors during Edward's minority and were charged with the rule and charge of his son in all causes and affairs of the whole realm till Edward was married and 18. So Henry clearly envisaged a 16-person council working in harmony. And this was a reaction to previous minorities. Think of the protector come usurper Richard III in Edward V's minority, Edward V, of course, being one of the princes in the Tower, or think of the Duke of Suffolk's disastrous misrule during Henry VI's minority, the loss of French lands, the groundswell of opinion that turned against the Lancastrian regime in the 1420s and 30s. Henry was thinking more of the councils appointed for Edward III in 1327 or of Richard II in 1377. And the most important task of the council during the years of Edward's minority, was to keep the realm at peace and secure so that the king could take power when he reached his majority. So Henry named 12 assistants to help with this crucial task, many of them from the existing Privy Council. And finally, the will ends with a series of bequests. Basically, everything is left to Edward, except £10,000 each to Mary and Elizabeth on their marriage in money, plate, jewels and so on, meanwhile giving them £3,000 a year to live on, and then to Catherine Parr for her great love, obedience, chasteness of life and wisdom, she hasn't slept with anyone else, £3,000 in plate, jewels and household stuff, and such apparel as it shall please her to take of such as she had already, she did have a good wardrobe, and £1,000 in money. And then smaller amounts to the executors, the assistants to the executors, and to his household servants, and crucially his doctors, an apothecary. Such is the contents of the will. But that doesn't take us to its central mystery. (laughs) 
How can toilet training cows help save the planet? Should we start renting our clothes? And why on earth is Beds from the Happy Mondays now keeping bees? I'm Jimmy Doherty, TV presenter, farmer and conservationist. And these are just a few of the questions we'll be answering on my new podcast on Jimmy's Farm from History Hit. Join me on the farm to hear from the likes of the founder of the Eden Project, Sir Tim Smith. It is only people who don't know what they're doing that can do marvellous things in some areas because received wisdom will sometimes you talk yourself out of it if you've got lots of people who've done it before. Professor Dieter Helm on how to stop climate change. There may be all sorts of products like avocados and everything will have palm oil in it, etc. And these have not just long distances involved in it, but they're not actually producing what could be produced on the land and the frame that it's set. And my old friend, Jamie Oliver. I think I was stupid enough, naive enough, <laughs> and unspoilt enough about the world that we live in. Listen to On Jimmy's Farm now, wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Historians have disagreed about how much the last will really represents Henry's final wishes. And previously, the consensus was that the contents of the will were the products of a conspiracy. And there have been three main controversies or mysteries around Henry's last will. The central question, I suppose, is was it the product of a coup? But secondly, was it signed when it was dated? And thirdly, was it tampered with after signature? So let me try and answer those questions. Was it a coup? When Henry VIII revised his will for the last time, on the 26th of December 1546, the major change he made then was to remove certain people from those who'd previously been nominated to be on the Regency Council. And the names removed were Stephen Gardiner, Bishop of Winchester, and Thomas Howard, Duke of Norfolk. 
Now, by the 26th of December, Norfolk and his son, Henry Howard, Earl of Surrey, had actually been arrested on charges of treason. And Gardiner and Norfolk shared this. They were both what we might call conservative in religion. They had been inclined towards Catholic theology. For example, believing in transubstantiation in the Mass, that the bread and wine literally became Christ's body and blood. Their opposites were what we might call evangelicals or proto-Protestants, those who believed in the Bible being in English and reforming abuses in the church and so on. And one theory is that at this time at Henry VIII's court, there were two factions, two sort of loosely linked political parties, if you will, linked on basis of their religious beliefs, and that the evangelicals manoeuvred to keep the conservative Gardner and Norfolk from power. Now, to test this, we need to go back to the summer of 1546, when the Conservatives seemed to be exerting power, including Thomas Risley, Henry's Lord Chancellor. In July 1546, Anne Askew was arrested. She was a sacramentarian, which is to say that she believed that the bread and wine were merely symbols of Christ's sacrifice. And in Henry VIII's England, this was heresy. She was arrested and put in the Tower, where Risley and Sir Richard Rich asked Anne Askew to name others who believed the same as her, and especially asked her about Catherine Parr, Henry's last wife, and other women of the court. And to persuade her to talk, Anne Askew was racked, first by the lieutenant of the tower, and when he refused to proceed in an act of savage criminality by Risley and Rich, quote, throwing off their gowns, they would needs play the tormentors themselves, racking her till they almost tore her body asunder till, as Askew herself recorded, I was nigh dead. Now, while this was all strictly illegal and highly irregular, torture was actually against the law at this time. If you didn't have a permit from the Privy Council, in the case of someone already condemned, and when that someone was a woman, all of which applied to Anne. But despite it, she refused to indict anyone. She didn't break, and as a result, she was burned for heresy at Smithfield. Now, Why such a desperate and determined pursuit of heretics, of heresy? I think it is because had Askew's spirit been broken as effectively as her body was, she might have implicated others. She might have named evangelicals at court, and had they been moved out of the way, she might have cleared the path for conservatives to hold sway after Henry's death. Remember, everyone could see in that last year of his life that his time was almost up, but no one knew quite when it would happen. But anyway, Anne Askew didn't break. So the Conservatives chose another more audacious target. This time, at some point over 1546, they tried to indict the Queen, Catherine Parr, herself for heresy. Now, Catherine Parr was an evangelical. She enjoyed debating religion with the King. One time after she had left the king's presence, he was overheard by Gardner to mutter, a good hearing it is when women become such clerks, and a thing much to my comfort in my old days to be taught by my wife. Gardner seized the opportunity. He soothed the king with those sort of ostensibly reassuring phrases that actually alarm and disconcert, and soon, we're told, wetted the king both to anger and displeasure towards the queen. Stirred to distrust, Henry allowed Catherine Parr to be investigated. Her rooms were searched for forbidden books. Her ladies were questioned. Articles of arrest were drawn up against her. It looked very much like her life might be on the line. And we might be astonished that the six wives' ditty survived. Ends as it does. 
That it did so was mainly due to Catherine Parr's own quick thinking. She was tipped off. And when she next was able to visit the king, and he asked her about matters of religion, she delivered a speech of submission so artful and persuasive that Susan James has argued that it's rivaled only by Katerina's morally troubling speech in The Taming of the Shrew for total capitulation. In fact, it's actually been speculated that the parallels between those two speeches suggest that Shakespeare was reading Fox's account of Catherine Parr's speech. Anyway, if she did say these things, the speech was certainly enough to convince Henry. He took Catherine Parr in his arms, we're told, called her sweetheart and declared they were perfect friends again. And this reunion marked the end of any coup by the Conservatives, because the next day when Risley appeared with 40 guards in the gardens to arrest Catherine Parr, all that could be seen by the eyewitnesses who told this to Fox was that he knelt before the king and strains of the king's voice saying, Arrant knave, beast, fool, could be heard, and then Risley was dismissed. But some historians argue that to make sense of the critical slips from power and apparent jostling for position that characterise the ebb tide of the reign, we need to imagine that evangelicals at court, now with the upper hand, deliberately and murderously conspired through a series of calculated machinations to seize control of the throne after Henry's death. The conspiracy theory identifies the evangelical faction as being Edward Seymour, Earl of Hertford, Henry VIII's brother-in-law, and John Dudley, Lord Lyle, along with Sir William Paget, the King's Chief Secretary. So let's go back to Gardner and Norfolk. Did the evangelicals manoeuvre to get Gardner and Norfolk ousted from the Regency Council, named in Henry VIII's will, in order to increase their majority and hold on to power when Henry died? At the end of November 1546, Gardner was invited to exchange some lands with the King, and Gardner asked to meet Henry to discuss the matter. Now, exchanging, which was a euphemism for giving up lands to the crown in return for some sort of minimal payment, wasn't uncommon. Between 1533 and 1547, Archbishop Thomas Cranmer surrendered 36 manors to the king. The Archbishop of York surrendered 74. That Gardner had by this point in time only grudgingly given up one suggested that his truculence towards this normal, albeit tyrannical, demand by the king angered Henry at what he perceived to be Gardner's disloyalty. His request to meet with the king was stonewalled, and realising he'd messed up, Gardner wrote to Henry on the 2nd of December, I would not willingly offend your majesty for no worldly thing. This is my heart afore God. And he asked pardon of the king if he had taken badly his doings or sayings in this matter of lands. Henry's response is a scorching letter of reprimand. The contained aggression brims over the finally wrought sentences. It makes one squirm to read it. Henry says he could not but marvel at Gardner's temerity in denying that he had refused to hand over the lands, and unless Gardner wanted to conform to the king's wishes, Henry could see no cause why you should molest us any further. Gardner was in the royal doghouse, and then he was removed from the Regency Council in Henry's will. Now, was this a situation created by Gardner's enemies? Was it, as it's been called, a trumped-up quarrel, where Gardner was made to look deceitful by misleading whispers in Henry's ear? Well, it's possible, but perhaps it's not probable. The only person who had the means, who as secretary might actually have written the words of the peremptory letter that seemed to come from Henry, was Paget. Paget knew Gardner well. Gardner had been the master of Trinity Hall, Cambridge, when Paget studied there and afterwards had become Paget's friend and patron. 
Gardner had introduced Paget into royal service. In fact, Paget was basically Gardner's protégé. So whilst he had the means to carry out a conspiracy, to have plotted the downfall of his friend and patron was an act of great and, I think, unlikely disloyalty. Also, Henry's letter to Gardner mentions that the bishop had discussed the matter with Risley, who also told Henry, and who wouldn't have been involved in a religiously motivated plot, because, as you've already heard about racking Anne Askew, just like Gardner, Risley was a conservative. So the idea of Paget trying to bring Gardner down through this unreliable business of, you know, what's he going to say when the king asks to exchange land seems to me highly fanciful. In fact, I think we have to think of Occam's razor here. The simplest explanation is the most likely. Gardner was proud and obstinate. He upset the king, and then the king removed him from the privy council in his will. Those present on the 26th of December, when Gardner's name was removed, heard Henry say that Gardner was too willful and heady to be about his son, and that he would encumber you all and you should never rule him. He is of so troublesome a nature. So I don't think we need a plot to explain Gardner's fall from grace. Gardner was stubborn. He was pig-headed. He wasn't suitable to rule over the prince. Henry wanted him out. Well, what about Norfolk? Well, as with Gardner, some construe the downfall of Norfolk's son, Surrey, and Norfolk himself as a product of a conspiracy by the supposed evangelical faction of Paget, Hartford, and Lyle in order to gain possession of power. The problem is evidence. We really only have two things to go on. There's an enigmatic memo in Risley's files from the end of 1546, which says, Things in common, Paget, Hartford, Admiral, which means Lord Lyle, and Denny. So it implies an alliance, but of course it doesn't really offer us anything substantial on which to build a case. And then there's the assertion by the imperial ambassador François van der Delft that in the crucial month of December 1546, nothing is now done at court without their, meaning Hartford and Lyle's, intervention, and meetings of the council are mostly held at the Earl of Hartford's house. Geoffrey Elton wrote about this and said, the faction turned to securing the Privy Council, which, for a crucial month, 8th of December 1546 to the 4th of January 1547, met not at court, but at Hartford's townhouse. And other historians have also assumed, following Elton, that this meant the evangelicals were consolidating power. But van der Delft was wrong. The Acts of the Privy Council state that between the 8th of December and the 2nd of January, the Privy Council met at Ely Place in Hoburn, which was the townhouse of Thomas Risley, not the leader of a supposed evangelical faction, but a conservative. And so this pivotal piece of evidence, which has been used to imply the manipulation of England's primary organ of government by the evangelical faction to build a power base, actually proves nothing of the sort. Why ever they met away from court? Maybe because Henry wasn't feeling very well? It wasn't about the consolidation of evangelical power. They met at Risley's house not because he was suddenly a key player in the evangelical faction, but because he was Lord Chancellor. It was basically business as usual. So it's not necessarily, nor historically, persuasive to conjure up a conspiracy theory to explain why Surrey and Norfolk were arrested for treason. In fact, the reckless, proud Surrey created the circumstances of his own disgrace. He had sought the position of regent for his father after Henry's death which is how he implicated his father Norfolk, and he had quartered the royal arms with his own. This heraldic misdemeanour in a predominantly preliterate age constituted a sort of visual crime of treason, and Henry's response to Surrey's egotism was his usual response to perceived betrayal. Revenge. No doubt sharpened 
by the haste and horror of his own sickness. Henry's imprint is over the whole investigation and trial. The list of questions to be asked at Surrey's interrogation was personally edited and amended by Henry. You can see his handwriting all over it. So I think it was actually sheer arrogant idiocy on Surrey's part that dragged him and his father into the Tudor quicksand. Throughout his life, Henry reacted with vehement vindictiveness towards those who fell short. In other words, the changes to remove Gardner and Norfolk were the product of dogged determination, not a doddering old man whose course was determined by others. The other questions of conspiracy can be dealt with with more brevity, you'll be glad to know. Was it signed when it was dated? Was it tampered with after signature? The will is dated the 30th of December 1546. It states, we have signed it with our hand in our palace of Westminster the 30th day of December in the year of our Lord, 1546. And it bears Henry's signature, Henry R, at the top and the bottom. And then we've got the signatures of 10 witnesses. Now, the statement that it had been signed by the king's hand is not technically true. Henry hadn't signed anything with his own hand since September 1545, because the system had been developed to save him from the tedium of inscribing his name on state documents. Three designated royal clerks were given authority to impress a facsimile of Henry's signature on each document with a stamp made for the purpose, and they could ink in their indentation. This signature by dry stamp was an officially sanctioned forgery, and the clerks involved were regularly pardoned for treason, the treason of counterfeiting Henry's signature. The system was used to authenticate everything issued in the king's name, hundreds of documents a month. So by December 1546, something like 1,600 state papers had been signed by dry stamp. The condition of its use was that every document was registered in a schedule which the king signed every month. And on the 30th of December 1546, Henry VIII's will received, therefore, the same treatment as any other official state document. It was signed by a dry stamp and recorded in the schedule of documents. Later 16th century attempts were made to challenge the validity of the will on the grounds that Henry hadn't signed it himself. But these were basically invidious and fallacious. If true, it would have undermined the legality of all the documents produced in the last 18 months of Henry's reign. And Henry's government was prepared for all eventualities. They ensured the legality of the documents through this belt and braces approach. Even if signed by dry stamp, the will was certainly legal and binding. The real question isn't that. The real question is that the fact that the dry stamp, by definition, didn't require Henry to be present to be applied meant that it was open to abuse. It was theoretically possible, therefore, that the will was not signed on the day stated, but at some later point. And this possibility is exaggerated, perhaps, when you consider that the will witnessed at the end of December 1546, was not registered in the schedule of documents for the end of December 1546, but in January 1547, when it's the penultimate item. Now this hypothesis of a later stamping is appealing if you're looking for evidence of a conspiracy, because it creates the possibility that Henry VIII was not the sole author of his will. Historians David Starkey and John Guy have argued that the will was tampered with or added to after the official witnessing on the 30th of December. For them, only a later doctrine can explain the two clauses they think unlikely for Henry to have written, the one granting unfulfilled gifts that ought to be honoured, and the clause giving Henry's counsellors basically carte blanche to act as they saw fit to ensure the surety of the realm. These clauses gave Henry's executors great latitude to remake the post-Henry world as they wished. So David Starkey believes that they must have been, quote, minimal and subtle forgeries inserted into the will for that purpose. 
Now, what evidence is this based on? Dr. Starkey thinks that the ten witnesses may have signed a blank sheet. Quote, for the last lines of the will are written more closely together as though the signatures were already there. Now, curiously, it doesn't look like that to me. The last lines of the will seem to me to be spaced out on the paper with the precision of an expert calligrapher. There are no squeezed characters or cramped lines. In fact, throughout, what changes have been made to the will are minor. There are five interstitial additions, there are four redactions. Generally speaking, when someone's put lawfully begotten after Mary and Elizabeth's names and have to be taken out. And the mark of these things, these changes on the page, is evident. If spaces are left for later additions, then those gaps are obvious too. Sometimes Henry seems to have forgotten, say, the surname or the first name of one of his servants, and a space has been left for it to be filled in. Otherwise, the 28-folio will is complete. It flows from one folio to another without breaks, and the redactions and additions that are present make it clear that substantive edits after signature would have been impossible without recording that on the text itself. It seems very improbable that the clauses were added or that the witnesses signed a blank page. Perhaps, Starkey adds, the signed will was not the text we have. Perhaps, of course, but we need evidence. Dr. Starkey adds that he has incontrovertible evidence that the will was altered after the 30th of December. This irrefutable proof is, quote, that Sir Thomas Seymour was listed as a councillor in the will, end quote, and as he was only made Privy Councillor on the 23rd of January 1547, Dr. Starkey says that the will must therefore have been altered after this date. This is a simple mistake. Seymour is not listed as a councillor in the will. He's only appointed to be an assistant to the 16 councillors. And this position also doesn't mean that he was already a member of the existing Privy Council. In fact, he's one of three non-councillors among the assistants, and there were even six non-councillors in the Regency Council. So it's not a pivotal fact in the light of which, and I quote, no modern court would hesitate to overturn Henry's last will. It is not incontrovertible, and in the end it doesn't really prove anything. The only suggestion that the will was stamped later comes from our first point of inquiry, that it was entered into the January register of documents. Now is this a mistake? It seems highly unlikely, doesn't it, given such an important document? In fact, if you look at the list of the schedule the king's will is introduced with a flourish. The first two words are extra large. It's certainly not a mistake anyone was trying to hide. In fact, I think it was put there to be noticed. It's likely that the king's presence at the witnessing and stamping of his will had made its inclusion in a separate register of documents to be endorsed by him superfluous. But in the last days before Henry died, it seemed suddenly worrying that not including it on the register might undermine its legality. It was introduced into the January Register ostentatiously to proclaim its authenticity. If it had been stamped later to facilitate tampering, then surely it would have been rather risky to include it so prominently. The January Register would have given away that it wasn't the will that Henry had authorised and would have cast doubt on its legitimacy. In short, it seems to me that the will that Henry left behind when he died was precisely as he intended it to be. It was literally the king's will, the product of his volition. This was what Henry wanted for after his death. Those named as being on Edward VI's Regency Council and those omitted were as Henry intended. We needn't look to theories of conspiracy to explain how, on the 28th of January, 1547, 475 years ago, the evangelicals were in a strong, though not unassailable, position when Henry died. 
As Glyn Redworth has put it, they inherited rather than seized power. Now, as Henry lay dying, they do seem to have decided how to advance, that Hertford would become the Duke of Somerset and Lord Protector, that Henry's plan for conciliar rule would be jettisoned, that Paget would be Hertford's right-hand man. Henry's singular trust in his right, entirely beloved counsellors had been utterly misplaced, and fear of the mighty Henry VIII was soon forgotten. His attempts to rule from beyond the grave were to be in vain. But that's another story. If you'd like to read more about Henry VIII's will and to investigate the claims I've made in this podcast, I shouldn't mind if you picked up a copy of my book, The King is Dead, now in a rather gorgeous red paperback. It's published by Head of Zeus. But either way, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor and not just the Tudor love. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.